Many of us didn't grow up observing the church calendar, but since the fourth century, the church has ordered time according to the significant moments in the life of Jesus and the early church. This calendar begins with the celebration of Advent, a period of four weeks leading up to Christmas when we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, the Son of God, and we anticipate His second coming. In between these important Advents, we wait in the tension. We pray for deliverance. We cry out against injustice. We long for the culmination of redemption and the reign of King Jesus. The texts that are used for these weeks are not your typical Christmas passages. They are prophetic, apocalyptic, and filled with warning and hope. Each one leads us to consider Christmas for what it truly is. As the prophet Isaiah writes, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Enjoy the episode. It's good to see you guys. Happy Advent to you. Thank you. I don't know if that means anything to anyone, uh, but just by way of introduction, Advent is the season of time leading into the Christmas season. It's the four weeks prior to Christmas. Can you believe that? Four weeks until Christmas. That is crazy. I don't think that we're getting a real sense of that by the weather or by other things, but um, we're going to be doing our best over the next four weeks to be celebrating the Christmas spirit, although the way that we have done this in the history of TRP is to follow the lectionary. Now, this is another nerd term for you. We've got Advent, which is the four weeks leading up until the Christmas season, and we also have the lectionary, which is a selection of passages that have been picked out of the Old and New Testament. You have an Old Testament reading, you have a Psalm reading, you have a gospel reading, and you have an epistle reading, I believe. Um, And knowing me, you know that we're probably going to spend a little bit of time in the Old Testament. But what's weird about Advent and the the passages in the lectionary, they are not Christmassy at all. They are weird. And tonight we're going to be kind of dipping into that, into these prophetic, apocalyptic sort of texts. Um, Before we do that, I do want to give a shout out to Tim Steindl, who's not here. I believe he's in Atlanta watching a football game in one of the sweetest new NFL stadiums that there are. And I don't even know why you guys are bothering with football. I mean, the real football players begin tonight at 8.30 p.m. That's the Eagles. Thank you. But I just do want to give a shout out to Tim because he did a great job a couple weeks ago as he was filling in for me when I was in Boston. I had a great time listening to him on the tape and was excited to hear how he's grown as a speaker and as a follower of Jesus. I also want to give a special shout out to Tessa, who has spent a painstaking amount of hours doing beautiful Christmassy things like this Advent wreath here. And most of our Christmas graphics, Um, I don't know if she gets all the praise that she is due, but we are thankful for her and for um, what she does around here for the things that often go unnoticed. So this is Advent week one. We will be looking at a passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. 
But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire. And all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? The word of God for the people of God. For over a century, critical biblical scholars have approached the book of Isaiah not as the work of one author, but rather as a collection of at least three different authors, three different Isaiahs, or if you want to get super nerdy, three different Isaianic communities. Among the reasons for this judgment is the differing language, style, and vocabulary of the proposed authors, but also, and more importantly, the distinct content and setting that appears at different points in the book. In other words, the book of Isaiah seems to reflect three very different historical contexts spanning over a period of about 200 years, all in one book. For example, in chapters 1 through 39, the author who is traditionally identified as Isaiah ben Amos, the 8th century prophet of Jerusalem, he writes to those living within a pre-exilic setting. That's another nerd word, which basically means that the prophet is writing before the exile, before Jerusalem is destroyed, before the temple is ravaged, before the elite people are booted out of the land and taken into captivity in Babylon. In fact, the prophecies in the first portion of this book depict the Assyrians as people still in power. They have not yet ceded their seat to the vicious Babylonians who will eventually raid and destroy Judah in 586 BC. Because judgment is impending and not yet realized in this section of the biblical text, the author spends a good deal of energy warning his audience of the consequences of their sinfulness. They are urged to repent, to put away their idols, to trust in Yahweh, but they don't, at least not ultimately. Isaiah 39, it ends with a prophecy of destruction that's given to the southern king Hezekiah. The text says, the time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left. And then in the very next chapter, in a, in a couple verses actually, the context switches to a time about 160 years later. Babylon has defeated Assyria, and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the removal of the people from the promised land by the Babylonians has actually happened. 
To address this experience of tragedy, the prophet now announces comfort and hope. Even though the people now find themselves in dire straits, they're in foreign territory, they have no temple, they have no sacrificial system, they have no semblance of normalcy, Yahweh has not given up on them and the prophet announces comfort and hope. Walter Brueggemann writes, the burden of Isaiah 40 through 55 is that Yahweh is now to come powerfully among and in behalf of exilic Judah. And what results is some of the most beautiful and hopeful and powerful poetry in the entire Old Testament, perhaps even in the entire Bible. You could easily just scan through these 16 chapters from Isaiah 40 through 55 and pick out some of your favorites. I actually did that this morning as I was trying to finalize some of these thoughts. But I'm going to pull some out for us just to consider. This is in this middle section where people have been destroyed and taken off to a foreign land where they no longer have their homes and their temple and their, their religious system. And the prophet writes, don't you know? Haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow tired or weary. The poor and needy seek water, and there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will respond to them. I, the God of Israel, won't abandon them. The things announced in the past, the prophet says, look, they've already happened, but I'm declaring new things. Before they even appear, I tell you about them. But now, says the Lord, the one who created you, Jacob, the one who formed you, Israel, don't fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When through the rivers, they won't sweep over you. When you walk through fire, you won't be scorched and flame won't burn you. I'm doing a new thing. Now it sprouts up. Don't you recognize it? I'm making a way in the desert, paths in the wilderness. We have these two sections in the book of Isaiah. We have chapters 1 through 39, which is looking forward to the destruction of God's people and, and urging them to repent, to not allow their sin to take a foothold. And then in the next context in 40 through 55, we have something that has taken place, something drastic, something dramatic. And now the people are wondering who they are and whose they are. In one section of text, we have impending danger, and in the other, we have redemption and restitution and reformation of God's people. And then we get to the third section of the book of Isaiah, chapters 56 through 66, and we get yet another historical and political and theological context. On the world stage now, the Persians have overtaken the Babylonians and they have allowed the exiles, the people that have been removed from their homes into Babylonian captivity to go back. The poetry of this section, it reflects a time maybe 50 years or so after that of Isaiah 40 through 55. Put simply, we have moved from pre-exile to exile to post-exile. You might think that leaving exile would be a good thing that the glorious return envisioned by second Isaiah would rectify any problem and insecurity that the people have, but it doesn't. Problems continue. 
the return apparently to their homeland. It was not quite as glorious as the prophet envisioned in Isaiah 40 through 55. There was infighting between the returnees. Remember, these are the, the elite, the powerful that have been exiled because they have more worth than the, the lower class. They go back and they find these people that are in the land now and they're trying to figure out how to coexist. There was a debate over how inclusive or exclusive the newly formed community should be. And even more generally, there's a discussion and confusion over what it means to be God's people. Who's in? What do you have to do? How do we understand our identity in light of our experiences of loss and hurt and separation? And it's in the midst of this confusion, in this context, that we get our first Advent reading. The prophet composes a long lament, which is basically a cry out to God. If you look at the book of Psalms, um, the majority of Psalms are lament Psalms. They're petitions, they're pleas. You're just crying out to God. How long, O Lord, will you leave me here forever? How could you abandon me in this moment? The prophet is composing his own lament. And in the midst of that, he says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Another way to phrase this is, answer me. Where are you? What are you doing? Do you even care about me? Do something. Show up. There's a comparison posed by the author between God's silence in this prayer and its surrounding context and God's past actions. And they begin to look back at how God has been present in the lives of these people the author writes of a time gone by. They remembered earlier times when he rescued his people. And maybe you guys can relate to that. Maybe as you sit here right now, there have been moments in your life when God seems closer to you than he does right now. Maybe in the past, the struggle to believe, to trust, to proclaim God's goodness has been less formidable than it is right now. Maybe in the past, there have been more stories of victory and deliverance and redemption in your life. And as you occupy space in these pews, you look back to a day in the past when God has worked, when God has been present. And now perhaps you can identify with this cry, rend the heavens and show up along with the author of Isaiah 63, we can remember these earlier times when God rescued his people, when God rescued us. But now we have been exiled. We have been defeated. We have lost all sense of normalcy. And God perhaps seems as though he has turned his back on us. Maybe there's people in this room that can relate to that. The language in the poem, it shifts to reflect the author's lament. He says, you were angry when we sinned and you hid yourself when we did wrong. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. On the one hand, this is deserved trouble. The people have sinned. They identify that. The prophet knows it. He admits it. Whatever punishment they have received is due to them because of their sinfulness. But on the other hand, the prophet throws some barbs at God in this text. God's absence is not just due to the people's sinfulness. One scholar says it's impossible to talk to someone or to try to embrace someone who has turned the other way. 
The charge in this passage is that we are what we are because of what God has made us. His turning came first. And if he turned back, things would be different. And there you have it. Merry Christmas, guys. God is silent. The people are ticked. And nobody wants to budge from their positions. Or at least that's how the author here in Isaiah 64 is envisioning this. We have no images of baby Jesus in this passage. It's not very Christmassy in any sort of traditional sense of the term. On its own, in fact, the passage is about the power of prayer and the importance of staying in the fight. For the author, God has turned his back on his people. God has given them over to their sin, but the cry is for God to rend the heavens, to tear open the veil that separates them, to come down, to be in the midst of his people, and to do something. And this cry is dangerous. Beyond the fact that they're calling God to materialize before them, they are calling God to task. They are not afraid to point the finger and demand that God does something. And I know that we've talked about this in the past, but when we pray, I don't necessarily think that it looks this way. There's examples in the Old Testament where we have people, whether they be Abraham, who is arguing for a certain number of people to be saved in the Sodom and Gomorrah text, or we have Moses, who, when he has ascended Mount Sinai to receive the law, the people down below are creating a golden calf. God gets ticked in that story, so much so that he says, Moses, while Moses is up on top of Sinai, Moses, you need to go down and get your people because I'm going to kill them. And then Moses steps into his intercessory role and says, you can't do that. What will everyone think if you lead us out of slavery and oppression and bring us out here only to kill us? And the text says that God relents, that God changes his mind, that God listens to the prayer of Moses. And here in Isaiah 64, the prophet doesn't settle for what is deserved. He continues on saying, yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Don't be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities, they've become a wasteland. Jerusalem, a desolation, our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasured lies in ruins. And then this last haunting line. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Rend the heavens. Tear open the veil that divides us. Come down. Show up and do something. Advent, we already mentioned, is a season of waiting. It's a season also of anticipation. We look back to the birth of Jesus, the Son of God who takes on flesh, who becomes one of us to live in a way so that he can identify with us in our weaknesses. It's a season of reflection where we look back to the first advent or the first coming of Jesus, but we also look forward to his second coming. And between these two poles, we wait in the midst of what can only be described as the tension. We wait in the midst 
of sex scandals that dominate our news cycle. We wait in the midst of tax reform proposals that are dividing our country. We wait in the midst of our own recalcitrance and unwillingness to move from our predetermined positions on any number of ideological or political or theological issues. Another way to frame this might be we wait in the midst of our rightness. Though an odd juxtaposition to what I just said, this, I, this next category I don't believe is mutually exclusive, we also wait in the midst of our growth, our unrest, our unresolved questions, and our confusion. Perhaps they're not mutually exclusive because we don't allow ourselves to admit that we often live here. We wait in the midst of our despair and brokenness and suffering that's present either in our lives or in the lives of those around us. We wait in the silence and in the exile. Now I realize that these examples, they don't encapsulate the fullness of your life. I know that some of you are thinking like, dang, that's bleak. I was having a pretty good day until I came here. I know that some of us are in a different place in our life, but still we live within the midst of that tension where God has not fully completed his plan for us and for this world yet. In the midst of these situations, however, wherever you land on these things, we must ask, are we asking God to rend the heavens and come down? with the same tenacity as the prophet in Isaiah 68? Are we in a place where we are asking God to show up with the passion that Moses would have on behalf of his people? Are we asking God to do a great work in our midst in the same way of the people that we have these examples of in the text? This isn't a Christmas story, but I think it's a good one. And Jesus also tells a story in his ministry. This is in the book of Luke, and I want you to hear this. Luke chapter 18, it says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they always should pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in the town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time, this judge refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will God not bring about justice for his chosen ones? who cry out to him day and night. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This passage allows us to begin to move into this period of expectation and waiting. And my hope is that wherever we are in this Christmas season, whatever it is that you're looking forward to, I know that for some of us as we sit here, Christmas is a difficult time because it magnifies the loss in our life, the difficulty that we have perhaps communicating with our family, the things that we have experienced in the past. My hope is that we become a people who can identify with the words of this prophet and say, rend the heavens 
and come down. What's cool about this is this passage, I think, is twofold because as we pray that, we also understand that there was a moment in history when God did rend the heavens and come down to identify with us, to become one of us. This is climactically revealed in in the baptism of Jesus, where as he approaches the water, the text says that the heavens rip open and a voice calls out, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. There's different versions of this, but one says, listen to him. And the example that we see Jesus setting is one who was not afraid to ask big requests of God, to stand in the gap for people, to stand in the midst of the tension, to wear the weight of the people around him, to meet the needs of those that he saw. And my hope tonight is that we would begin to work through some of that in our own lives, to begin to pray big prayers and expect God to meet us where we are, to ask God to rend the heavens, to come down, and to be present where we are. It is a dangerous call, but I think it's one that we need to take on a bit more seriously as we head into Christmas together. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.